This is a crowd podcast. Welcome to the Fertility Podcast, where we aim to educate and empower you on your fertility journey, whatever stage you're at. I'm Natalie Silverman, a broadcaster and fertility coach, and I had my son after successful fertility treatment. And I'm Kate Davis, an independent fertility nurse consultant. We'll be your trusted guides, chatting each week with experts and people just like you to let you know you're not alone. Let's dive in. So welcome to another episode of the Fertility Podcast. How are you doing? How are you doing, Kate? I'm all right, full of cold. Oh. But other than that, I'm good. Oh no, I virtually passed you my cold from the other week. Oh, I'm blaming the husband oh, okay. this one. Yeah, he's maybe in closer proximity. It's been a bit <laughs> of a funny week since we last chatted. Uh, you've been head down full on and I've been a little bit sideballed. And I just, I just wanted to kind of mention it here, just... Just maybe because I've not been as present as I'd normally be on my socials. We had a really sad family tragedy and um, it was my cousin who's the same age as me, who lives in America, who sadly died. And I'm I'm not telling you this to uh, make you sad, even though it will do. But um, I'm telling you this because it it obviously has hit me quite hard. And um, I suppose I just want to, in a little profound way, pass on what I'm going through in that just cherish every minute. That's what Kate and I have been having a little chat about, haven't we? We have. Just it's had a big impact on you, mm. hasn't it? Well, she was the same age as Explain me. Explain that more. Well, well, it's my cousin who's also called Natalie. She's two months older than me. And um, she died very suddenly on Monday last week. And I suppose as I've been processing it all, it's just made me really realise, because I haven't lost somebody my own age recently. I lost a friend when I was about 19. And I think mm. when you're in your midlife, you start to... Um, you start to really think about all this stuff. And so I'm sharing it with you just as a, to share what's been going on in in my world, because I have been a little bit absent from socials and Kate's been busy holding up her side. But you know what, that I think what you're saying there is a great reminder for everyone going through a fertility journey that we hear, don't we, that women put life on hold and they look back and they think, oh, that they've wasted that time by being so absorbed and consumed with their fertility journey that actually they've not had time to enjoy life and actually what you're saying is a great reminder that every moment does count and we do need to realize that despite whatever we're going through you know difficult journey or whatever there's still life is still there for living and we're only on this world once so precious thank you that is exactly the point that I wanted to make so thank you for sharing Mm. that with that I always like to know what's been going on with you because I know you've um, you've been busy as ever. One of the things that we did a couple of weeks ago on the podcast was Kate very kindly offered a free check-in to find out what's going on with you, with your cycle. And we will be doing this again in the future on the podcast. And, and, and I'll also mm. offer the chance to, to come and chat with me more about the whole emotional well-being side of what I like to do. Mm. How did it go? It was with the lovely Zoe, wasn't yeah. it? Who was the first person to email. Yeah, she was the first person. Do you know what? She emailed at six o'clock in the morning. She and she said when we first started chatting, I think I'm the only person that listens to the podcast at six a.m. in the As morning. I was drops. like, I think you possibly are. Nice As work, Zoe. Yeah. Well done. Yeah. So no, it was great. So a big shout out to Zoe. I really enjoyed chatting to her, and we went through all of her cycles and had a really good look at what's going on with her menstrual health, which was great, and gave us some tips for going forward. So yeah, it was a cool chat. And that is something that Kate can do for you. I'm always. 
driving Kate a bit mad there's people in our closed Facebook group which we'll give you the details uh, at the end who I'm always like go and, go and talk to Kate don't forget that is another part of, of what you get from uh, listening to us and, and getting to know mm. us more and weren't you speaking to a national newspaper as well? I have so yesterday I spoke to the lovely Sophia Money Coots who we had on our podcast yeah. didn't we not long ago talking about her egg freezing journey and Sophia if you've not come across her podcast she's got a fantastic podcast that literally does chart the whole of her egg freezing journey so she contacted me because she's aware that I've been what did she say fighting the war effort with uh, my volunteer vaccinating and she wanted to talk to me about the hesitation around women of reproductive age and the COVID vaccine so we had a really good chat about that and it's coming out in the next few days I think. How exciting so just on that note if anybody is still feeling a little unsure what would you say? Yeah go and get it. Go and get it. You're at greater risk as a pregnant woman. You're more vulnerable. So go and have your vaccine as soon as you're offered. There is no risk to fertility. There really isn't. Think of it like the flu vaccine. We don't question the flu vaccine. And this is, you know, the same. Vaccines are the same. Go ahead, get your vaccine, get yourself protected. The only time you might want to just delay it slightly by literally a few days is if you're about to start IVF treatment, just so that make sure that in case you have any side effects from the vaccine, i.e. temperature, feeling a bit rotten, that you're not then launching yourself into IVF treatment. But take a look at the British Fertility Society's uh, website and they've got a joint statement there that you can have a read of that will put your minds at rest. We'll put that in the show notes or you as well. Yeah, um, good point. So... Today's episode is a conversation about PCOS and what we're going to be doing is sharing with you a former conversation that we had with Professor Adam Balin, who is an esteemed colleague of of Kate's. He's somebody who is extremely knowledgeable in the field. And the reason that we wanted to share this was because Adam was talking about the international guidelines for PCOS. And was it 2018 that they came out? Yes. Yes. And yeah. they haven't changed since. So whilst we want to no. give you as up-to-date information as we can, th- this is the most up-to-date information, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, they haven't changed. It's a fantastic guideline. We'll put it in show notes yeah. as well. About a 200-page document. <laughs> but it's quite easy to read and easy to flick through to find the bit that's relevant to you. Well, have a listen. We're going to share it in a couple of parts. Have a listen to this first part where Adam is explaining an overview of of what these guidelines are highlighting. I think the key thing is the use of letrozole, which is a tablet to stimulate ovulation. So polycystic ovary syndrome is very common. It probably affects a good 15% of women, but it comes in all shapes and forms. So it's a syndrome. So by that, we mean it's a collection of signs and symptoms. When it comes to fertility issues, the key symptom is of irregular periods. So some women have very unpredictable periods and some women don't have periods at all. And of course, if you're not having regular periods, you won't be having regular ovulations. The issue with the polycystic ovary is it contains many more than the usual number of the tiny cystic structures, which are normally occurring natural structures that contain the X. We often refer to them as follicles. And in a natural cycle, there will be many follicles at the beginning of the cycle, but only one will grow and ovulate. Women with polycystic ovary syndrome tend to have an imbalance of the hormonal signals within the ovaries and the signals that are important to enable the follicle to grow in a coordinated way. So the essentially, the ovary sort of stacks up with lots of these tiny little 
cystic follicles, and that's what you see on an ultrasound scan. Some women, but not all women with polycystic ovary syndrome, have problems controlling their weight, and women who are overweight often have worse symptoms and will benefit from lifestyle changes, weight reduction, and sort of careful nutritional assessment, really, in order to improve the prospects of ovulating naturally and also improve the prospects of ovulating in response to the treatments that we may need to use. So there's a huge amount of interest in lifestyle and a sensible approach to diet and nutritional supplements, and that's covered in the new guidelines. Many people think that there's a a PCOS diet. There isn't actually one diet for all women with PCOS, but essentially trying to keep carbohydrate levels low is a good plan, but you need to have a balance of the appropriate amounts of protein and fats and often seeing uh, somebody with expertise in, in reproductive nutrition is a good idea. So that's the first thing. And actually, that's the first thing for everybody who's trying to have a baby. And that really applies to men and women and I think it's it's worthwhile just bringing in men here because although men won't have PCOS most women with PCOS who are trying to get pregnant will have a male partner who's probably got similar diet to themselves similar lifestyle so it should be a couple's thing so if you know you're in a heterosexual relationship, couples together should work to improving lifestyle. And if you're in a same-sex relationship, the same applies as well. So improving a general health will improve the prospects of having a healthy home, healthy household, and hopefully a healthy pregnancy. So so that's really the sort of the first line. And there's a lot in the guidelines about, you know, how to approach lifestyle, exercise and diet. I appreciate it's you know, it can sometimes require quite big changes. It's not always easy to achieve, but with appropriate guidance and support and the right sort of advice and the right sources for that advice, I think it, most people trying to get pregnant are, uh, are motivated to try and improve things. But even with weight loss and improvement in lifestyle, many women with PCOS will still have irregular periods. Then they will benefit from some form of ovulation induction treatment. And that's really the bulk of the guideline. So the guideline goes into detail looking at the evidence for the different types of drugs and protocols for stimulating ovulation. And as with most things in medicine, we try to start with simple approaches. And if they don't work, we move to the more complex approaches. So historically, for many years, there's been a tablet called Clomid or Clomiphene that's been the first-line treatment for stimulating ovulation in women with PCOS. And it works very well. Hundreds of thousands of babies have been born quite successfully with the use of of Clomiphene. But in the last few years, another drug called Letrozole, it's a different class of drugs. It's called an aromatase inhibitor. And essentially, it's working within the ovary itself to influence the relative balance of the main ovarian hormones. And we're talking here about testosterone and estrogen. So they are the main uh, hormones that the growing follicles make. So women with 
PCOS often have slightly elevated levels of testosterone. Many people think of testosterone as being a male hormone. It isn't a male hormone. All women make testosterone, and for that matter, all men make estrogen. It's the relative levels that are different. And in fact, you can't make estrogen, which is the main hormone that's important for reproductive health, without uh, first having testosterone. So testosterone gets converted into estrogen, but that process is a little bit wonky in women with PCOS, and so you have relatively high levels of testosterone, and that can have other effects around the body. So classically, it can lead to unwanted hair growth on the face and other parts of the body, sometimes acne, sometimes thinning of the hair on the head, all of which are amenable to treatment, although actually the treatments are often difficult in a woman trying to get pregnant because a lot of the drugs we use for hair problems can't safely be taken whilst you're trying to get pregnant or they may even be contraceptive. But anyway, coming back to this drug letrozole, it tries to correct the imbalance between testosterone and estrogen and thereby enables the follicles to grow in a orderly manner, whereas clomiphene works in a different way and clomiphene leads to higher levels of the hormones that stimulate the follicles that come from outside of the ovaries. So here we're talking predominantly about follicle-stimulating hormone and luteinizing hormones. So they're the two hormones that influence the developing follicles. They're actually produced by the pituitary gland, which is in the base of the brain, and they travel around the body to then stimulate the ovaries. So you can understand that if you're using a drug like letrozole that works within the ovary to try and correct the imbalance within the ovary, it's inherently going to be a little bit better at trying to restore ovulation in somebody with PCOS and indeed the data from a number of scientific publications now have shown that letrozole gives you a a greater chance of having a baby than using clomiphene. So like we said before we shared that clip with you, we will put a link to these guidelines in the show notes because Kate, Adam was talking about how people were mainly being prescribed clomiphene and how this whole change with letrozole was only starting to come when we spoke to him and it's it's gradually becoming more prominent in people's mindset H- has this changed is it is it more common now for letrozole to be to be prescribed and for people to be able to to get it when they're asking do you know what i always see a mix okay. so sadly i'm still seeing quite a lot of clomiphene or as people will know the name the brand name better clomid being prescribed over letrozole which is uh, you know sadly even despite the fact that the guidelines are there. And that is for two reasons, I think. Often clinicians can have experience in a particular drug and therefore they feel happy to prescribe that drug. But also there can be local policies based on health trusts that dictate what drugs may be prescribed in the protocol. So it's often that it is uh, Clomid. I get really excited when I see a lady tell me that she's on letrozole. And if she's on Clomid, and certainly one thing I would say for anyone listening, if you're on Clomid and you're not responding after two or so rounds, go back, have a chat with your doctor, ask, you know, could we try letrozole? Because you are more likely to respond with letrozole if you're not responding with Clomid. Okay. And again, we'll put links because Adam had talked about how he'd reproduce the guidelines for the... um, Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. We'll put that link. The Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. What did I, what did I say? You just took a while to get it out. It's okay. <laughs> you got it right. But 
He just tripped over it a bit. <laughs> ironic that it took a while to get it out. <laughs> so we'll put a link to that as well because he's specifically written it to help, you know, support in the conversations that you're having with, with your GP. I thought it was really oh. interesting hearing about how letrozole carries a lesser risk of OHSS and a lower yeah. risk of, of multiple pregnancies. Can you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's just the difference. The difference in the way that letrozole works as opposed to Clomid. Letrozole works more on the ovaries and therefore it just seems to work that much better and have less side effects and less risks. <laughs> With regards to kind of monitoring and how it is, it is important when someone is on Clomid or Clomiphene or letrozole to monitor a woman just to make sure that she's not going into ovarian hyperstimulation. Again, I see differences in types of monitoring. So on a low-dose okay. Clomid or a low-dose Letrozole, there might not be as much monitoring, but certainly as the dose is up, you should be having regular scans. And again, I see some differences. So if you're worried at all, just go and have a chat with your doctor and ask, you know, what is the situation? How frequently should I be being monitored? And they'll hopefully reassure you. Okay. We really just want, as we keep saying, we want you to feel empowered to ask for more if you don't feel you're getting enough. I, I have conversations Absolutely. with people and they feel like they're really having to drive what's happening forward because they don't feel they're getting the support from the medical professionals. And we have been kind of brought up to be like, they tell us what to do. And yes, that should be the way, but that's not to say you can't ask. Absolutely. And, you know, I firmly believe that women, unfortunately, have to become their own fertility advocate. And you have to take control and start fighting for what you want and what you need. At the end of the day, yes, your doctor is an expert, 100%, but you are the expert on your own health. And that's really important to remember that. Now, there was also a conversation about ovulation kits at home and using them during this kind of monitoring period. Just talk a bit about the whole false positive side. Yeah, well, unfortunately, um, OPKs, so ovulation kits, don't work in women generally with PCOS. And that's because they naturally have a raised levels of luteinizing hormone. Now, some women might find that they do work for them, but others won't. And you might get false positives or you're not ever going to get a high reading. So there's various different things that can happen. Often women don't know that because the small print on these OPKs right at the very bottom, it tells you it doesn't work for women with PCOS, by which point you've probably spent a fortune on them. And unfortunately, with PCOS, you are literally peeing money down the drain. So don't bother with them. There's much better ways of determining when you're ovulating. So before we rejoin Adam to talk more about PCOS, we have to once again have PharmaSure sponsoring this podcast. Their product, Inafolic Alpha, contains alpha-lactalbumin, which corrects the gut microbiome. It reduces inflammation and increases the absorption of myo-inositol. And the result being, it helps to alleviate the symptoms of PCOS and improves overall fertility in women with PCOS. So to find out more, visit fertilityfamily.co.uk. Right, let's get on with the show. We're going to talk more about what are the common issues that Adam is hearing people are still coming up against. Have a listen. Sadly, I see lots of women who have been told they will never get pregnant if they have PCOS, and that's absolutely not the case. There's every reason to feel positive and optimistic if you've got PCOS. Just make sure you get referred to the right clinic and a reproductive medicine unit with sort of specialist expertise. It may take longer to get pregnant if you're having irregular periods, but there's a very good chance you will get pregnant. And even women with irregular periods are having irregular ovulation. So that's the first thing. The second thing is you're overweight because you've got PCOS and there's nothing that you can do about it. Well, 
it is the case that some women with PCOS find it really hard to lose weight. But again, with the right sort of support and encouragement, and and you have to also understand that it's not a sort of a quick fix, but most people can improve their fertility, not necessarily by getting back down to a completely normal weight, but you know, a 5 to 10% reduction in body weight can be enough to make a big difference. I mean, there are eligibility criteria for NHS funding based upon body mass index, and that's sort of kind of controversial, but there is no doubt if you're very overweight, the chance of having a healthy pregnancy is reduced, so you do need to try and do something about that. And then the other thing is, sadly, I think a lot of women with PCOS end up having IVF when they don't need IVF. And that's another big bone of contention. And I I spend a lot of time trying to argue for funding for these ovulation induction treatments. They're not as high tech as IVF. They work very well. Obviously, it's important to check all other components of your fertility. So you need to have your fallopian tubes checked. Your partner needs a sperm test. And if there are problems there, then you may need IVF. But if the tubes are open, if but the sperm test is normal, then ovulation induction with these simple tablets is the first-line treatment. If they don't work, and not everybody ovulates in response to letrozole or clomiphene, if that doesn't work, then sometimes we give hormone injections of the, of the key hormone that contains FSH, follicle-stimulating hormone, the same sort of drugs, actually, that are used in IVF, although you use lower doses, because here you're just trying to stimulate the development of a single follicle to release a single egg. So that's something called gonadotrophin treatment. Another option is an operation called ovarian diathermy. That's a laparoscopic procedure. So a laparoscopy is a procedure done under general anesthetic when a scope is put inside the tummy cavity and it's often used for assessing the fallopian tubes and treating conditions such as endometriosis. And if you've got PCOS, we can cauterize little points on the ovary to try and stimulate ovulation. But again, that has to be done by somebody with appropriate expertise. But that can work very well in certain groups of women with PCOS. And how frequently is that procedure done, Adam? Because obviously it's its other name which puts the fear of God into most women is ovarian drilling, ovarian which whoever, drilling, yes. whoever thought of that name, yes. you know, really got that wrong. It's awful. Um, it's horrible. Yeah, sure. But how frequently is the procedure done? Because again, I don't, it's not something I've seen routinely. No, probably not that very, that often, actually. We do it a little bit. I mean, I think the advantage is that you don't run a risk of multiple pregnancy after you've had it done and therefore you don't need to come for regular scans and monitoring. The downside is it takes longer to get pregnant after ovarian diathermy and so it's not as effective as using the drug treatments. So it's not done a huge amount these days because the drug treatments are so effective and and should be available in most places. The other thing about ovarian diathermy, and obviously any op- operation brings with it certain risks, so it has to be done by somebody with appropriate 
expertise and drilling is a mis I mean it is, as you say it's called over and drilling but you only want to do a very little bit to the ovary you don't want to drill lots of holes sometimes you see ovaries that look a bit like the top of a pepper pot because uh, somebody has been a little bit over enthusiastic and burnt lots of little holes in the ovary and that's really not the right thing to do yes i think for the right person performed by the right gynecologist it can be effective but it's not hugely commonly performed in the UK. If you could see the face that Natalie's pulling right now when you're talking <laughs> about ovarian drilling. It's just, not just that, but the thought that something could be performed by the wrong gynecologist just fills me with dread, but we'll, <laughs> yeah, that's we'll move on. Um, well, yeah, I mean, there is an in, there's an interesting sort of history behind it. Polycystic ovaries are larger than normal ovaries. And so before all these drugs were available, the standard treatment for the polycystic ovary was something called a wedge resection in which oh, yes. a big chunk of the ovary was removed to make to try and make the whole ovary smaller. But, you know, oh, that, I remember but those. With, I mean, I've never done a wedge resection. They, they, that, that operation was performed sort of from the 1930s through to the early 1960s. And I remember very, the talk of them, definitely. Yeah, ah. I mean, diathermy has sort of taken over from wedge resection because it's a much sort of gentler thing to do and you really don't want to be removing big chunks of the ovary because of course the ovaries contain eggs and so if you're removing bits of the ovary you're removing very valuable eggs. Uh, I suppose another thing worth touching upon is the use of metformin. Yes, absolutely. So women with PCOS, particularly those who are overweight, have an increased likelihood for developing diabetes particularly as they get older. That can run in families. It needs to be screened and tested for, certainly before trying to get pregnant. And if you have a tendency to developing diabetes, again, lifestyle, diet, nutrition is the first line to try and improve things. And then the next is the use of medications such as metformin, which is a very effective drug managing diabetes. And because some women with PCOS have a sort of an early form or pre-diabetes type situation, it was thought that metformin might be a good way to cure PCOS. And in fact, we did a lot, we've published lots of research on metformin. Our first studies we did were in the sort of the mid-1990s. So, well, that's 20, yeah, more than 25 years ago we did um, our research on PCOS and there have been lots and lots of publications over the years. And we're responsible for the Cochrane Review on metformin. So the Cochrane Reviews are sort of big scientific publications that bring together all the papers in a particular area. And we've done that for metformin. And the bottom line is that Metformin on the whole doesn't do a huge amount of good to improve fertility for women with PCOS. It, it has a role for those who are developing diabetes. It can sometimes help women who don't ovulate in response to clomiphene. So you can combine it with clomiphene. But there's no hard evidence that it's beneficial for use combined with letrozole or the other sort of treatments that I'm talking about. So metformin doesn't do any harm, can help some people, but sadly it's not the the great uh, hope or answer that we thought it was going to be. Okay, so I have to just go back to uh, that ovulation drilling because it just... just... (laughs) 
The idea of that word, I mean, we know that language in reproductive health needs a bit of attention. There's all sorts of different scenarios. And I know you've, uh, you've put calls out asking for people to share their worst words. Who, who yeah. added drilling into the mix? I mean, come I on. Know. Isn't it awful? Can you just imagine a man in a kind of a top, in a hard hat, yellow visor with a big drill? It just makes me think of like the nightmare of the dentist, you know, and to yes. think of a drill's going to go anywhere down down there. Just, oh, yeah. I know. You heard my reaction. I know. It's a horrible word. Yeah. But as Adam said, it's not quite like that. But, uh, well, not like that at all. And, and very uh, rare, yeah. he was saying, wasn't he? Yeah, it's it's rarely used. I mean, I, I don't see it very often. In fact, I, j- I had a patient the other day saying that she was offered it. What, what, how was, was it, it called? Off- what was it called? Yeah, ovarian drilling. She, yeah, she it was exactly called that, that to word. her. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, it, you know, it, it isn't used very much. And with this individual, I felt that actually she'd been, <laughs> she'd been offered it very, very quickly. And, and there were so many other things to do. Right. So I did suggest just going back and having that conversation, not to say that it might not be the right thing, okay. but just to go and ask the question. Okay. But yeah, it's, it's rarely used these days or not so much. And, and sure. just to clarify, it's done under general anesthetic. Yes, 100%. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the hesitation, I was like, yes. Okay. Adam also talked there about the use of metformin. Basically, said the bottom line is that it doesn't do a huge amount to improve fertility for women with PCOS. Because mm. mm. I always hear metformin in, in, in the conversation with PCOS, and I just assumed it was another, it was another part of, 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 the, yeah. kind of the managing. It's often added to the mix. Yeah. I think it's just disappointing. I think, as Adam said, it, it's traditionally used as a diabetic drug. And because PCOS and diabetes are so intrinsically linked, it was really hoped that it would, would help. It doesn't. I think there was also a hope that it would really help with weight loss. It doesn't, which is sad. But it's still used. And some some women will say that they have noticed a difference. Some not. I think the, the national the international guidelines, you know, say that really there is no evidence to support its its use, from what I can remember. But, you know, we are still seeing it used. And for some women it, it may well be helpful. In the main, probably not. So to recap though, when it comes to PCOS, I want to just kind of give you some really clear pointers in terms of what it is and your first line defence in terms of what you can do. Because we touched on it at, at the start. Adam talked about lifestyle changes, dietary changes. So PCOS, it's a really complex condition and it's a really debilitating condition, actually. And it impacts both your hormones and your ovaries. So with ovaries having multiple cysts and hormones having raised androgens. And those two things impact on your symptoms, your quality of life and your fertility. So it's a significant condition. You can't cure it but you absolutely can control it. And that's the most important thing. And you've written lots of blogs about diet, dietary changes that you can make, mm. which again, we'll put links to in the show notes. So in Same. terms of a, a really like obvious dietary change that people can make, what would you say? Mm. Without doubt, low refined carbs and low sugar. Yeah. That's so simple. Just make initially just making that switch from anything white, so white pasta, white rice, white potatoes, switching that to your whole wheat version, brown version, reducing your sugar content as much as you possibly can. Lifestyle is actually the number one management of PCOS. That's where it starts. Treatment starts after that. So lifestyle management is the number one. So that 
is definitely my top action point. Okay. Tracking cycle comes second. With PCOS, you don't know, you know, often you don't know when you're ovulating. You have really long cycles and maybe not ovulate many times in a, in a calendar year. So actually tracking your cycle and understanding when you're ovulating and understanding when you're fertile is crucial. So I recommend that for everybody. Become your own PCOS advocate you know, collate as much of information about your own PCOS health as you possibly can. Every blood test you have, get a copy of the report. Every scan you have, get a copy of that report. Really understand your condition, become your own advocate and fight for what you believe that you need to actually help you control your PCOS and you, and improve your fertility. And of course, you can ask Kate questions. You can find us online. I'm at Fertility Puddy on all the socials and i'm at your fluty journey on all the socials and make sure of course you come and join our close facebook group which is just the fertility podcast and we have our brew at two every thursday at two o'clock on instagram so if you're listening to this as it comes out because you've subscribed because you're just brilliant and then uh-huh. you can make a little note of any questions and come and chat to us this very thursday or of course you can do it in the closed Facebook group. Ask the expert. 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 Okay, so I've got one about PCOS. It's quite a long one, so please okay. bear with me. I was diagnosed with PCOS at 18. I'm now 34. I was never given, sadly, any further information or tests other than a scan that confirmed it and a blood test that said my testosterone levels were normal. Since then, I've had fertility treatment and had Clomid and she conceived her son. And I was told I wasn't ovulating due to mild PCOS. I'm now struggling with secondary infertility and told I'm ovulating and I have PCO, but not the syndrome part. I'm very confused. Please, can you explain the difference between PCOS and PCO? Yeah, it's a really, really good question. I'm not sure there is such a thing as officially mild PCO, but the definition really for PCOS is you need two out of three things. Number one is polycystic looking ovaries. And the term cyst sounds like something sinister. The term follicles sounds like something soft and fluffy. In essence, they're the same thing. A polycystic ovary is just an ovary that's got lots of follicles in it, which in essence should be a good thing. But if you've got lots of follicles in there, it's a polycystic ovary, number one. Number two is signs that you're not ovulating, so irregular cycles or tests confirming you're not ovulating. And the third thing is either signs or symptoms of that hormonal imbalance so things, things indicative of high testosterone levels like acne or hirsutism or problems with body weight. So any two of those three things means you've got PCOS. So actually, you could have ovaries that don't look polycystic but have the syndrome. You could have perfectly regular cycles and have the syndrome. So you really need two out of those three things. Hopefully that makes sense. Yeah, yep, that's kind of. fantastic. I don't know. Enough. And I wish more women were assessed on the Rotterdam criteria because yep. so few are and it drives me insane. I Absolutely. think we'd have much quicker time to diagnosis if they were. Yeah, because you've got, to, you've got to be pragmatic about, about it. And at the end of the day, if you've got PCOS, but you're ovulating, then you address the symptoms. If you've got PCOS, but you're not ovulating and you want to get pregnant, you address that. So it's yeah. really important. So I've got another PCOS related question for you, James. This one says, roughly a year ago, I was told that I would technically fit into the category of PCOS by a gynecologist, but they advised me that I don't have PCOS. What I have is some follicles that fill with fluid. I had a suspect cyst burst leading up to this diagnosis. I was told it wouldn't affect my fertility, but I don't understand why it wouldn't affect it. Please, can you share any light on this? And she goes on to say, I also suffered my first and only miscarriage at seven and a half weeks in October 2020. This was my first pregnancy. I did take Pregnacare pre-pregnancy vitamins, but should I be taking different supplements due to suffering a miscarriage and fitting into the PCOS category? Quite a loaded question. 
Hmm. Yeah, I think it's a really good question. I think part of the problem with the answer is that I struggle with what she's been told. It doesn't make an awful lot of sense to me. That's so, why we've um, got you here, James. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> you know, going back to what, thanks. What, 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 as I said earlier, that system follicle and essence are, are you know, a little bit synonymous. And yes, sometimes a fluid-filled sac is just a cyst containing fluid. More often than not, it's a follicle with a potential egg in it. Obviously, they don't all grow. So I don't understand that difference, really. I think what I'd probably say to you is I'm more than happy for you to give her my contact details just to give me a little more information because I think without that, it's a hard one to answer. But it sounds like she's got polycystic ovaries from what she says, really. The link with PCOS and miscarriage is incredibly tenuous. There isn't fantastic evidence to suggest women that there's cause and effect. There is a little bit of evidence to suggest women with PCOS are slightly more li- likely to have recurrent miscarriage. There's a little bit of evidence that supplements that correct the insulin resistance may have some beneficial impact in early pregnancy, but not fantastic studies. So in some studies, people have carried on metformin to 12 weeks, some studies with myo-inositol to 12 weeks. So perhaps a supplement that includes myo-inositol, like anafolic, as well as folic acid, may be slightly better if you have got PCOS. Yeah, I love inafolic. I think yeah. it's great. I see really good good changes in yeah. my ladies with their symptoms and their yeah. cycles as well. Ask the expert. 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 Don't forget to let us know your questions for James, either on our Instagram or in the closed Facebook group, all the ways you know to connect us. And uh, we will be speaking to him again in a couple of weeks' time. Be sure to rate, review, subscribe and share this podcast because it's how people find it and it's how people know it's worth their ear holes because the podcast space is pretty busy these days. But we want to make sure you know that you can always be guaranteed evidence-based, trustworthy, up-to-date information from us. So thank you for your ear holes. And until the next time. Crowd Network. A place where you belong.